You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. We continue or we pick up our series in Hosea. As you know, Hosea is a, a heartbreaking story and somewhat perplexing story about a prophet told to marry a prostitute. And in the book, we'll, we'll have, we have seen and will continue to see that it's filled with cycle after cycle of promises of judgment and hopes that God's covenant people will repent and return to him. David Murray, professor of Old Testament and practical theology at Puritan Reform Theological Seminary, reminds us that Hosea gives us vivid pictures of God as a faithful husband intent on loving his unfaithful wife, a parent whose heart is twisted up inside over the effect of his child's sin and so much more. In the context of all of God's uncomfortable promises to judge his people in heartbreaking ways, Murray points out God's repeated promises throughout the book to live to redeem, to restore his people to himself after they wandered away from him. This passage this morning continues this cycle of the promise of judgment, but also God's desire to restore his covenant people. This encounter clearly shows the betrayal and the breaking of of the covenant from God's people and the insanity of rejecting God and forsaking the covenant. So follow along. I'll be reading a portion of it now and, and a little, and the other portions later on, but I'm going to focus on chapter 6, verse 4 through 7, verse 2. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have who them by the prophets, and I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgments goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on their way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing, Ephraim's whoredom is there, and Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely, and the thieves break in, and the bandits raid outside. But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, and they are before my face. All their kings have fallen and none of them calls upon me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, again, we gather around your word, and, and we come to this text and future texts in Hosea that are, that are pretty vivid of how you are describing the people of God and how they have forsaken you and gone off to so many other things. And so, Father, as we hear this news today, we pray as we, as we uncover kind of the the effects of sin in their lives, we pray that we would have some takeaways for our own life, that we would 
see that we too can fall into those similar patterns, that we too can forsake you and go after so many other things. Remind us of what Christ has done for us. Remind us of who we are in Christ in the midst as we see and look at this passage this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite and vivid pictures of the effects of sin is in the movie The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers of Gollum. Uh, many of you may know this story. If, if we want to show the picture, that'd be good. There he is. Um, many of you may know the story of, of J.R. Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings. This is his second, uh, or the second movie. I'm not sure what, the, I guess it follows the, the books. Uh, but they are, the, the goal is they're, they're, they're this ring that has a powerful influence and it's evil influence. So a group of people are, are trying to, to destroy this ring and so there's a lot going on, but there's three characters, Mr. Frodo, who is responsible of destroying that ring, going to the pit of destruction, and then we have Sam, who's his best friend, and we have Gollum they pick up on the way. Now, Gollum used to look like us, human-like, right? And the effects of the ring have destroyed him. And there's this scene in the, in the, two, twin of, um, the, two, the two, um, two towers, right? And he says that, I need it, I want it, I must have my precious, right? He wanted that ring so much in that scene, he was willing to die, kill, kill someone for it. That's the effect that that ring had on his life. He wanted it so much, he desired it so much that it clouded his judgment and, his, and, and how he should be really living. I believe Gollum illustrates for us in this passage, how far the people of God have fallen from the covenant of God. God, in his rich love for his people, are, is now pronouncing judgment on them in hopes that they will repent. So this morning, as we look at this passage, again, we can look at the people of God and say, oh yeah, they have really fallen into really awful stuff. But I also want us to understand as we go through this that there's also sin can have an impact on us as well. And it can affect us as well. And hopefully that will never look like Gollum or the people of Israel. But we do need to see ourselves as people who need continual to grow and understand this covenant love that God has for us. So with that in mind, I want us to look at uh, two, two important truths. The broken heart of God in that first passage that I read. Vivid images of a sinful heart. And then ask the final question, is there any hope? Any, any hope for Israel? Any hope for us? So turn your attention again to chapter 6, verse 4, verses 7 and 2. In this section, we see our God heartbroken over the sin of his beloved people and, and how they continue to again and again break the covenant that started with Adam. In fact, verse 7 says this, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with him. Now, there, there's some discussion on what Adam means. Some think it is a location that that this town, Adam is a, describing a town that they too fell into deep sin. Um, there's others that would say, and I would agree with this, that it is it's referring to Adam, right? That God made a covenant with Adam in, in the garden. And there, Adam was the first to transgress God's covenant. And so, since he transgressed God's covenant, we have a history now, a cycle now, of breaking God's covenant of his people. That's what I believe that Hosea, and it makes sense because throughout the theme of Hosea is covenant. Remember that God is promising to us and we're promising to him. But he is always faithful and as we know 
Throughout biblical history, God's people have not been. But yet God is always determined to bring his people back. And so for God, here is the main problem that God lays out, that his people have clearly broken his covenant, and it had started long ago with Adam. So in verse 4, we see in his reproach God's compassionate concern over the rebellion. We're reminded again of his covenant love. And in that love, he calls his people to repentance. And if they don't, judgment is coming. Hosea here is using very human language about God. There's something in the heart of God that corresponds to our, to our horror and amazement, an unexpectedly bad treatment. We see this marriage in view when Hosea states, Where sh- What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? You see, Hosea is remembering how he treated his wife, and he treated his wife well, and shown her much love and patience and affection. And Hosea was amazed that someone would sink as low as Gomer had. In fact, in other passages, it says, what shall I do with you, Gomer? You know, he, Hosea himself must have been in agony when he could not stop his wife from going after other lovers and after other lovers and more lovers. You see, God, in the same way, feels the same way about his people when we wander, when we continue to go after the precious, those things that are not of God. It breaks his heart. His heart is broken when he sees his people continue to sin and sin and sin. And we see that in this passage, Hosea then describes Israel's love as very fleeting and feeble. It says in verse 6 that God is looking for a devoted love but sees nothing close to Israel's pursuits. And yet consider, consider this, that the length that God has gone through. God has given his people many privileges, but one of the greatest is that he he continues to speak to them with power. God responds to his people's rebellion and betrayal, listen, not by despairing over them, not by violent anger, not by abandonment, but steady determination to take action. And we see that in verse 5. His first action he to, is to speak with great forcefulness. Look at it. It says, Therefore, I have hewed them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as a light. Friends, God is not being spiteful. God is not being hateful here. It is God's determination to regain his people. He will do anything to gain his people within his character. Again, Hosea is, thinks back to when Gomer and back in 3.3. God is fighting for his people by using his words, his very words. Throughout his relationships with his people, he uses his word to encourage, to admonish, to restore, and to redeem them. His words of judgment here is to bring light to their hearts. Israel could say that, Israel can never say that God had not given them guidance. Throughout biblical history, we see God faithful in letting them know how they are to live in light of his love and his grace. His word has been like a sunrise banishing darkness. And this is true for us as well. The author in Hebrews chapter 412 says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than what? Two-edged sword, yeah. Piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. 
God speaks as he speaks his word. It is for a purpose. It is to remind us of his love, remind us of his grace. It's about reminding us of who we are and the, and the sin that separates us from him and that way that we can then grow in grace. See, the bottom line for, and for God in verse 6 is this. For I desire what? Steadfast love, not sacrifice. Knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What God requires of his people in this covenant is steadfast love and knowing him. See, God delights in both devotion to himself, right, to God, and showing kindness to others, of being stead- showing steadfast love and mercy to others. God delights in us wanting to pursue him, to know him, to know the life-changing awareness of his presence, the practical realization of his greatness, and the empowering of his influence in our lives. That's what he desires. Steadfast love and not sacrifice, but the knowledge of God. And yet, we see what follows in verses 7 through 7, chapter, chapter 7, verse 2, that God is heartbroken. Why is he so heartbroken? That they didn't show mercy. They didn't foster a desire to know God more deeply. Instead, what we see is this Israel society that was murderous. God's people society that was murderous. God's people society that was full of immorality. And God's people society full of violent robbery. And this breaks the heart of God. God has not yet though not given up on them or us in going to our precious, to going to our idols. Hosea continues to call God's people to repentance and employing various vivid images depicting how ongoing sin has defined them. Turn to me, and I'll read section 7, verse 4 and following. For Hosea compares Israel to a burning oven, a partially baked cake, a silly senseless dove, and a treacherous bow. Listen to verses 4 to 7, and we see vivid images of a sinful heart. First, the burning oven. Listen to what they say. But their evil, they will make the king glad. Their princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers, and they are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine, and he stretched out his hand with mockers. For with the hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders, and the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven, and they devour their rulers. Now, these verses are difficult to understand, but Hosea is bringing to mind another incident that shows their wickedness. There is much intrigue, and, and, and there's a description of an assassination. The imagery of the burning oven highlights how far God's people have fallen, both in attitude and in action. People, in their zeal for misplaced worship, of going after that precious, going after our idols, whatever they may be for us, is compared to a heated oven, a striking illustration of lust and passion gone awry. The oven was so hot that a baker could cease tending the fire during the entire night. He didn't have to tend to it. He can just, it was so hot that it, it just burned all night as hot. And while the dough he had mixed was rising, then with a fresh, just tending of the fire in the morning, have sufficient heat for the baking at that time. In these verses, Hosea gives an example of the kind of sin that resulted from such inflamed passion to the result of the assassination of the king. 
Hosea saw what was happening happening on a special day, a festival day for the king. And during the festivals, the ringleaders planning the crime became drunk, and the king as well. And keeping the image of the oven, Hosea states that the heat, the heart of the potters were hot with a desire to perform their treacherous deed. And each time they were near the king, their hearts flamed up, and they, were comp- uh, they, and they complicated their evil deed. They waited during the night with their passion, spoiling like the baker's fires, anticipating the morning. And when the morning came, the blaze of evil passion was stirred anew, and the evil deed was accomplished. Now, Hosea was not describing an, inc- an isolated incident, but one that was repeated several times in Israel's history. During Hosea's time, Zechariah was, Zechariah was killed by Shalom, Shalom by Mechem, um, Pekahiah by Pekah, and Pekah by the king of Hosea. Get the, you get the drift that this is not a one-time incident, that throughout Israel's life, they have, they have fallen from God, and they have been, hearts have been inflamed. See, these killings, again, show how far God's leaders, the priests and the people of God, are from God. They're, they're looking for these rulers and other nations to fill their void, to get power, to worship other idols that were insufficient. So what do we learn from Israel's condition? First of all, we learn of godless leadership. The last two generations... Israel's leadership was remo- has removed itself from God and his word and has char- or characterized as idol worshipers. And now we see the pr- end product of the desertion from the holy, loving God, godless leadership. We see also of human nature. And it's a, this is a vivid description of the burning fire. We see the nature of the, of the human heart, potential for all of us. It gets aroused and inflamed, and it does some wicked stuff much like Israel and Gollum, we are tempted to be ruled by our precious, by our sinful passions, by our desires. We also see a society without God. This graphic depiction points to a need of a savior. We need our minds and hearts transformed to make an impact in the society in which we live. When idolatry of all sorts rules the day, it will negatively affect the society we dwell. If we idolize power, if we idolize knowledge, if we idolize our reputation, whatever we idolize, it can negatively impact the community in which we live. It will not be a safe and secure community. Val and I are watching The Green Arrow. It's a a TV show on Netflix. And you can see how dark a city becomes when it's ruled by evil things. And the green arrow is one who tries to rescue the thing. But see, when we see when there's no positive godly influence in society, it can go awry. And we see in verse 7, prayerlessness and unbelief. It says, none of them calls upon me. And that's the tragic end that God's people that they would run from God, this God who's been faithful to them, the God who has repeatedly redeemed them, rescued them, protected them, protected them, provided them. They ran from them, and they were not seeking him any longer. They were were filled with prayerlessness and unbelief. Just um, on Friday, Val and I liked Hawaii Five-0. Anybody watch Hawaii Five-0? A few of us. But Danny, one of the main characters, he he was in a in a serious car accident, and, and the woman that was in the car with him was dying, and she said, why don't you pray for me? He said, oh, you don't need to pray. I'm here with you. But 
that's norm for the day, right? Why do we pray? Why should we pray? We just need to do it ourselves. We, need to, we can solve this issue ourselves. We don't, need a, we don't need our God, our personal God, to help us in our lives. That's where the people of God who have experienced time after time the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God, the grace of God, would turn away and not seek him. Again, I'm not pushing judgment on the people of God because we are just as accessible in my heart and in your hearts. More tragically, we see in verses 8 through 16 other images that lay out the condition of God's people. I want to read that section in society, but I will highlight 10 effects that sin has on us. In the images of the cake, the dove, and treacherous bows, there are 10, we see 10 impacts of sin. First, verse 8, sin confuses. Look at verse 8, Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Israel mixed with other nations, and they have become confused with who is their true God. Their idolatry strips them of their distinctiveness. Sin confuses. Who is your true God? Who are you truly worshiping? Second, sin obstructs God's work in their lives. Look at the second part. Ephraim is a cake not turned. What he's, Hosea is reminding us that their sin gets in the way of God finishing his work in us. Three, sin brings distress and weakness. Look at verse 9. Strangers devour his strength, and he knows it not. Like a person primed past his prime, Israel's best days are, are past. By turning continually to idols, Israel's lost their greatness. Crime grips their home. Idolatry is brought impoverishment. The extent of the territory was diminished. Sins bring distress and weakness. Four, sin brings decay. Verse 9 again. Gray hairs are sprinkled upon him, and he knows it not. Who has gray hair? <laughs> well, let me tell you, a better translation there is fungus, believe it or not. And the picture is bread has gone moldy, implying the deterioration of God's people and their influence. So if you have gray hair, don't worry. You're not, <laughs> you're not going bad. <laughs> Five, sin shows pride. Verse 10, the pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all this. See, their pride, which is often the bottom line for all of us, our pride and unbelief, shows in turning from God, thinking that we can handle this life on our own. They do not seek him or his ways or his words, and yet they want him to bless them, but on their terms. Six, sin is silly, verses 11 and 12. His, here is compared to a silly dove. Ephraim is like a dove, silly without sense, calling to Egypt, calling to Syria. And as they go, I will spread over them my net, and I'll bring them down like birds of the heavens, and I will discipline them according to the report made to their congregation. Even in that, even his desire to discipline shows his love for his people. Again, this vivid imagery of a dove pecking here, pecking here, right? Aimlessly, right? Unaware of this hunting net. And they're looking for the powerful nations of Egypt and Assyria. God reminds them that the answers do not depend upon the current superpower nations, but submission to the faithful covenant God. Friends, we're in a political season. Our, our answers do not depend on the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the progressive wing 
or the conservative wing or whatever wing that we want to align ourselves. They are not the answers to our problems. Amen. Amen. On all sides. Amen. Amen. Our, our answers is, is growing and understanding and knowing this covenant love that God has for his people. Seven. Sin is ingratitude. Verse 16. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they rebelled against me. I would redeem them. Again, always hope, but they speak lies against me. Here, here, here God has redeemed them and cared for them throughout their ages, and yet their lies misrepresent God. God is ready to redeem them, ready to receive their repentance, but they continue to go down the path of destruction. They live ungrateful of his past work in their lives. Eight. Sin is selfishness and insincerity. Insincerity, verse 14. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail from their beds for grain and wine. They gash themselves, they rebel against me. They may well when in trouble, but not out of a heart of faith. Not out of dependence upon the Lord. See, God desires true heartfelt worship from his people. God's requirements of wholeheartedness springs from his relational nature which comes through clearly in Hosea's marriage imagery. True love seeks and pursues the object of its affection. Right, Gollum, his object of his affection was that ring and the influences that it had on him. What is our object of our affection? Is it our Lord or is it other things? Is it money? Is it power? Is it influence? Is it entertainment? It is sex. Whatever it is, what, what, what is that is drawing our affection that only God can truly satisfy? Nine, sin represents God. Although I have trained, verse 15, and strengthened their arms, they devise evil against me. Even though God has worked in them and provided for them and restored them many times and protected them and taught them about himself, they continue to resist and reject and rebel against God. And then 10, sin turned to what is worthless. Listen to verse 16. They return, but not upward. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. God gives his last warning, call and warning. He is saddened and justly angry at their disbelief, at their idolatry, after going after those precious things that only brings emptiness. He's upset when they say, soon the whole world will know it's their defect. In the land of Egypt, the very place from which they had been redeemed, the people will talk about them with, as a laughing stock. God's punishment will revolve disgrace unless, unless they repent and turn from their folly in the remaining moments in history. Man, is there any hope for Israel? Are they too lost in their sin? Has their rebellion and their lack of repentance diminished any chance for them? How about us? As we continue to wrestle with our own sin, our own precious, our own passions, is there any hope? Well, there are. There's some gospel glimpses for us. In verses 6-5, verse 11 and 7-1. Look at verse 6-11. It says, For you, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore when I restore the fortunes of my people. Hosea gives a picture of a future celebration. 
Harvest time was intended to be a celebration time of feasting and thanksgiving to the Lord for his bountiful provision and perpetual cycle of spiritual reaping and sowing in every age. And this points to the teachings of Jesus. I want us in these, these hopes that we're, we're seeing, we see hope in the teachings of Jesus, in the work of Jesus, in the person of Jesus. In the, idea, in the parables of the, of the sower, Jesus defines God's kingdom in agricultural ways and teaches us that only seeds sown in good soil will survive to the harvest. Those who, who are knowing the Lord and, and that, that are loved by him and grown in, in him are the ones that are, God is growing in the harvest. Other parables use imagery and the final judgment, and it's, it's depicted as a harvest, a great harvest in Revelation. See, Jesus wants people to experience this vital judgment of celebration and restoration, and that is that's for all of us who are in Christ. That great harvest is waiting for us. In verse 1, though, 7-1, we see the hope of healing. When would I heal Israel? Israel was chosen has chosen the sickness and wounding of sin, yet despite their betrayal and rebellion, God holds out hope for healing. And this points us to the work of Christ. During his earthly ministry, Jesus healed the sick and the wounded to point to his ultimate purpose, the healing of sin for all who come to him in faith. He bore our wounds on the cross in order to heal us. We have hope for healing and ultimate healing. And then in verse 6, 5, it says, we see the light of hope. The judgment comes forth as a light. And that gives us hope. God's light exposes the true nature of sin. And that's a good thing. This is a great mercy. For apart from God's light exposing our sin, we cannot recognize the nature and power of sin in our lives. And this points us to the person of Christ. What does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. And as Jesus, as the light of the world, is the full manifestation of the light of God's judgment. Gospel John, in chapter 8, verse 12, he says, reminds us that whoever welcomes the exposure of this light will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 3, 19 warns those who reject Jesus remain in spiritual darkness. But in John 12, 42, Jesus holds out this light to all who come to him. Hope in the harvest, hope in healing, hope in the light. So how does this hope of future harvest, of celebrating in this future harvest, of this healing, of this light, help us to deal with our present struggle with sin and idols? John Flavel, I'll end here, identified six arguments Satan uses in tempting us with appropriate, re- and, then, and we have some appropriate responses to these temptations. So I'm asking you to spot the temptation in your life and identify how you would respond. First, the first temptation that Satan gives us is the pleasure of sin. And he says to you and to me, look at my smiling face. Listen to my charming voice. Here is the pleasure to be enjoyed. Who can stay away from such delights? That's what Gollum would say, my precious. The ring is my precious. Here's our response. Yeah, Lord, the pleasures of sin are real, but so are the pangs of conscience and the flames of hell. Yes, the pleasures of sin are real, but your word reminds me that Jesus is much sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. 
How about the secrecy of sin? Satan says this, this sin will never disgrace you in public because no one will ever find you out. Here's our godly response. God, can you, how can we hide from someone with, from you, Lord? You're everywhere. You're all-knowing. You're all-seeing. God, you know everything about me. I can never ultimately hide from anybody because I can never hide from you. The pursuit of, of the prophet of sin. Satan says this, if you stretch your conscience a little, you'll gain so much. This is your opportunity. God, a response, God, help me to believe that what I do, what I do, I benefit if I gain, what, what do I, if I do if I gain the whole world but lose my own soul? God, help me not to risk my soul for all the good in the world. Well, how about the smallness of sin? Satan says this, only a little thing, a little matter. It's only a trifle. It's no big deal. Who else would, would worry about such a trivial thing? Our response as we cry out to God, God, your words remind me that your holiness and majesty is no small matter. If I commit sin, I offend and wrong a great God. Is there any little hell to torment little sinners? No, great discipline awaits those who think we are little sinners. The less the sin the less the reason to commit it, right, God? Why should I be unfaithful to our God for such a trifle? How about the grace of God? Temptation is this. Satan says, God will pass over this as a weakness. He won't make a big deal of it. But he went to the cross, right? God, remind me. May I never, God, presume on your mercy. How can I abuse you, God, for you are good and merciful? Shall I take your glorious mercy and make it a reason to sin? Shall I wrong you? because you are so good? How about the example of others? Satan says this, better people than you have sinned in this way, and plenty of people have restored after committing sin, true. But what should be our response? Lord, you didn't record the examples in the Bible of good people sinning for me to copy, <laughs> but to warn me. Lord, I am, willing to feel what they, am I willing to feel what they felt for sin? I dare not follow their example in case you purge me into deep consequences of which you in which you cast them. Or about the guilt of sin. Hear what Satan whispers. Your sin is too great for God to forgive. Live in shame. It's okay to live in shame. You're powerless to deal with it, just to continue to sin because you know you're just powerless to really deal with it. Our response is, it's God, no, your word says that in Christ there is no condemnation. Your word says my guilt and shame have been dealt with on the cross. And I have power and freedom now to fight sin. As you hear these honest and real struggles with sin, remember to always go to the cross. For we see Jesus dying there. We see that he took our sins. He took the judgment that we deserved so that we would not have to experience that judgment if we're in Christ. Let his love win your love. Hear that? Let his love win your love. And let the love we place all other affections, all other preciouses that are out there. Let him be your precious. See, the power to change and not fall into the same power of Israel is to renew your love for Christ as you see him crucified in your place as well as raised to defeat sin and death in order to give you life eternal and give you freedom to live. Pray with me in this prayer by Christopher de la Hoda. Blessed at broken people. I will pray that you can follow along and read on the PowerPoint. Lord, we come to you, a blessed and broken people, holding nothing in your hands but sin and shame.
knowing keenly all the conflicts of a prideful heart that love its flames and hates your name. So we come to you without a single credit, clinging only to the precious cross of Christ, where the lion on the throne, who is the Lamb of God, gave his life in sacrifice. Yet we try to live our lives each day without you, try to find ourselves in things that fade away, find importance in things we do and not in you. Like fools at play, we run astray. So we come to you to glory in your mercy. Come to call each other back to your great love. Come to leave behind our idols and our substitutes and fix our love on God alone. This is mercy without measure in your death, Lord. There's no other place where sinful men and women may hide. So we run to find the grace that has made your, ours in you. We will live our lives where our great Savior died at the cross, the cross of Christ. Amen. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org.